Continuing to listen to the Crusades through Muslim eyes, which can be accessed at islamiclegacy.org. Let's listen. The Fatimids claimed to represent the majority of Shiites. They arose in North Africa and eventually conquered Egypt in 969, making Cairo their capital. The political ambition of this dynasty was to overthrow the more established Sunni Abbasid Khilafah and to unite the Shiites under their banner. At its peak, the dynasty ruled not only Jerusalem, but Mecca and Medina as well, only to be pushed back by the Seljuk Turks only a few years prior to the Christian invasion. Animosity between the Sunni Seljuks and the Shiite Fatimids was at its peak. However, Although the vast Muslim heartland was divided into two rival sections, the majority of the Sunni-controlled Muslim nation was united under the rule of the Seljuk Sultan Nizam-ul-Mulk. For thirty years the Muslims enjoyed relative stability until a shadowy cult of Shiites emerged from the mountains of northern Persia. They were known as the Assassins. The Assassin cult was founded by Hassan ibn al-Sabah a mystic who desired to destabilize the Sunni political scene, paving the way for the eventual domination of the Ismaili creed. The assassins targeted prominent Sunni leaders and scholars of Ahl-Sunnah wal Jamaa. They would frequently dress as beggars and wait by the wayside at the time of Juma in broad daylight. They would then approach the target, appearing lame and begging for alms. This would allow them to penetrate the heavy bodyguard that would sometimes surround the rulers. As soon as they were in striking distance, they would leap onto the target and stab repeatedly in the chest or the head. Their choice of tactic was deliberate. To punish and humiliate the victim, to show the heroic nature of the attacker, to cast fear into the hearts of the public, and to warn others that none was safe from their grasp. The assassins murdered Nizam ul Mulk, and after that, Malik Shah, the last Seljuk Sultan. They continued their campaign of assassinations, killing a number of prominent political leaders until the entire region erupted in chaos. The Sunni Muslim nation was transformed into a crazy quilt of independent states ruled by some bizarre personalities who seemed to have stepped out of the imagination of a popular storyteller. Ultimately, the sultans who ruled different cities in the empire would prefer to fight each other to expand their territory than worry about any external threat. In Syria, the brothers Ridwan and Dukak would be at each other's throats. In Baghdad, Muhammad and Barkyaruk would perpetually fight each other to take over their father Malik Shah's role. They were blind to the Christian hordes approaching from the west. Chapter 4. Antioch The 21st of October, 1097, saw a massive dust cloud appear far off on the horizon. A deathly silence blanketed the city. The morning souks came to a standstill. The people were paralyzed with fear. They spoke in whispers, and some prayed. The crusaders had arrived, 
outside the gates of Antioch. A white-bearded Turkish emir by the name of Yakisian governed the predominantly Christian city of Antioch. Admittedly, he had only six to seven thousand soldiers, but Antioch was no ordinary city. It was an impregnable fortress with walls that were twelve kilometers long, featuring three hundred and sixty guard towers built on three different levels. The walls themselves were solidly constructed on a frame of stone that scaled a mountain to the east, crowning its peak with an unassailable citadel. To the west lay a river bed running along the walls of Antioch, forming a natural obstacle not easily crossed. In the south, the fortifications overlooked a valley so steep that it seemed an extension of the city walls. It was almost impossible for the attackers to encircle the city, and the defenders would have little trouble communicating with the outside world and bringing in supplies. The city's food reserves were unusually abundant. Antioch featured not only buildings and gardens, but also wide stretches of cultivated land. The city could hold out for weeks, if not months, in the face of a siege. But no fortress could hold out indefinitely against a determined and sustained assault. Fortresses needed to be rescued eventually, and for that, Yakisian needed a plan. The defenders of Antioch would push the crusaders away from the walls of Antioch, and an allied army would have to come from behind. The Christians would be caught in between, sandwiched, crushed. Yaki Sion was confident in the solidity and security of his fortifications and supplies, but all of his weapons of defense might prove useless if the crusaders managed to find an accomplice willing to open a gate or give them access to a tower. This wasn't some paranoid fear conjured up in Yaki Sion's imagination. This scenario had happened at least once before. He decided to take the extraordinary step to temporarily expel Christian men from the fortress, whilst making good on his promise to look after their families in the meantime. Then he declared a jihad to rally the Muslims to defend Antioch from the Crusader army. Now all he needed was an ally. This would be the difficult part. He knew that he had been playing political games of deception and intrigue with these same leaders for about ten years. They were certainly not in any hurry to help him. He sent his most trusted and able emissary to convince local leaders to rescue Antioch from its demise. Shams al-Dawla was a brilliant diplomat, a tactful negotiator, and a skillful warrior. But most of all, he was Yaki Sian's son, and loyal to his father and to his people. He knew that the hopes of his people rested on his shoulders, and with the crusaders clamoring at the gates of Antioch, who knows how much time he had, and if he would be successful regardless. He would start with the closest cities, the Syrian principalities of Aleppo and Damascus. They were ruled by the two brothers, Ridwan and Dukak. Ridwan was barely twenty years old, small, thin, and frighteningly ugly. According to Al-Kalanisi, he had fallen under the influence of an astrologer from the Order of the Assassins. He used the assassins to eliminate his political opponents. After Ridwan became the king of Aleppo, he had two of his three brothers strangled to death just in case they may one day contest his power. The third brother, Dukak, managed to escape to Damascus, where the Syrian army there proclaimed him king. 
Dukak's life was colored by his blind hatred of his brother. He lived out his life in fear that his brother would assassinate him. Dukak himself was impulsive, of weak mental constitution, and inclined toward fits of rage. Their mutual hatred was so intense that even a common danger that threatened their own existence would not induce reconciliation. But there is more to this story. Two years ago, Ridwan was given Shams al-Dawla's sister in marriage. And it was only then that Yagi Sion realized that Ridwan secretly desired his kingdom. Now he too lived in fear of the assassins. Ironically, it was this common obsessive fear of the assassins that brought Yaki Sion and Dukak closer. Dukak was hesitant. He insisted he did not fear the Frange, but that he was afraid that if he led his army to Antioch, Ridwan would strike him from behind. Shams al-Dawla stalked the royal palace relentlessly, harassing Dukak and his advisors, resorting in turn to flattery and threats. Days turned to weeks and weeks into months. In December, Dukak finally agreed to take his army north. Antioch was a week's march, and Shams al-Dawla made sure he went along, just in case Dukak's feeble mind changed once again. The young king grew increasingly nervous as the army advanced. Two-thirds of the way, they unexpectedly encountered a small party of equally surprised crusaders. Tactically, the army of Damascus was in far superior position. But Dukak declined to engage. The Frange, initially disoriented, managed to recover their poise and slip away. Dukak had seen enough. He ordered his army to turn around and go home over the desperate pleas of Shans al-Dawla. Back in Antioch, the small army of defenders were proving more than a match for the Crusaders. This was no small achievement, for the number of famed Crusaders in this army could not easily be counted. Among them were names that had become the stuff of legend. Raymond of Toulouse, Bohemond of Taranto, Godfrey of Bouillon, Robert of Normandy, Hugh of Vermandois, and so the list goes on. In fact, Ibn il-Athir said, most of the Frange perished. Had they remained as numerous as they had been upon arrival, they would have occupied all the lands of Islam. Not only were their daring sorties beginning to exact a heavy toll on the crusader armies, but they had created an effective network of spies amongst the Franks that was bringing back good news. The Franks were dying of starvation. In fact, hundreds had perished already. They had slaughtered most of their horses for food, and the relentless rain had sown misery and hopelessness. And then there was the constant trembling of the earth, typical of Antioch. It was terrifying, the Franks. They thought the rumblings were a sign of God's anger, so they expelled the prostitutes and ceased gambling and drinking. Shams al-Dawla was running out of options. Having failed with Dukak, losing months of valuable time, he reluctantly returned to Ridwan of Aleppo. He prepared himself to suffer the indignity of pleading to Ridwan in the name of Islam and ties of kinship to rescue Antioch from its fate. But in his heart, the young man knew that Ridwan would sooner cut off his own hand than extend it in support. But, as fate would have it, the Frange were pillaging and ravaging the outer lands of Aleppo, and Ridwan felt his own territory was being threatened. He agreed to send out an army. Shams al-Dawla was triumphant. He sent a letter to his father with the date of the impending arrival. 
recommending the defenders of Antioch launch an attack as the Aleppan army engaged the Crusaders. They would be crushed in a classic pincer movement. After more than three months of siege, it appeared the tide had finally turned against the Crusaders. On the 9th of February, 1098, the Aleppan army appeared with thousands of cavalry. The Crusaders turned to face them with less than a thousand remaining horses. They were outnumbered, and their morale had hit rock bottom. The defenders of Antioch unleashed a ferocious attack from behind the Crusader army. The Crusaders were forced to fall back. By midday, the Frange were desperately defending their own camps from being overrun. Yagi Siad's men had the upper hand. But the tide of battle was to turn once again, for fear had entered Ridwan's heart. Instead of unleashing his horse archers to press forward his advantage, he adopted a defensive position. The Aleppan army was ordered to stand still on a small strip of land between the river Orantes and Lake Antioch and defend itself. The crusaders attacked at dawn, and the Aleppan army simply stood there, paralyzed. They had no space to move, so their horses were useless. The battle was reduced to hand-to-hand -to -hand combat. The heavily armored knights decimated the Aleppan army. It was total carnage. Ridwan wanted nothing more than to flee with whatever was left of his army. When the news of Ridwan's defeat reached the defenders of Antioch, their hearts fell sick, and the emir ordered a retreat into the city. They had barely entered the city when the sounds of laughter, followed by muffled whistles, rang out from outside the walls of Antioch. And then from the skies reigned the decapitated heads of Aleppan soldiers. Deathly silence gripped the city once again. What was to be done now? The morale of the crusaders had risen once again, and Antioch's supply of food was beginning to run out. There was no possibility of rescue from within Syria itself. There was only one remaining prospect in the mind of Yagi Sion, a sultan in Iraq by the name of Karbuka. Unlike Ridwan or Dukak, Karbuka was a Mamluk, a professional soldier. Mamluks were widely considered to be the most reliable, skillful, and courageous warriors of their time. Certainly, Karuka was powerful enough to challenge the Crusaders, but he was two weeks' march away in Mosul. And would he march from Iraq to Syria to rescue Antioch? Karbuka's answer? Yes, absolutely. The gray-bearded emir did not hesitate. He immediately issued an official call to jihad, inviting all valiant fighters to march to Antioch. The great Muslim army was a dazzling sight as it marched out of Mosul, with countless lances glittering in the sun and black banners waving in a sea of white-robed cavalry. Despite the extreme heat, the pace was brisk. They would reach Antioch in less than two weeks if they could keep it up. Ibn al-Athir writes, The Frange were seized with fear when they heard that the army of Karbuga was on its way to Antioch, for they were vastly weakened and their supplies were slender. The people of Antioch took heart. With the will of Allah, they would be rescued by this new army. Every day new rumors would circulate that the army of Karbuga had arrived. But these were just the desires of a people desperate for an end to their woes. But the patience of the people of Antioch was going to be tested once again. 
Karbuka had received alarming news just as he was leaving Mosul. A small army of crusaders had taken the principality of Edessa just north of their path from Mosul to Antioch. He was concerned that the Franks would launch an attack from behind him as he reached Antioch. According to the original plan, the Mosuli army would sandwich the crusaders with the help of the defenders of Antioch, but the tables could turn, and they might find themselves sandwiched between two crusader armies instead. Shouldn't Edessa be dealt with first? Karbuga Zemir strongly disagreed with him. They argued that the 3,000 Franks would not dare to attack the Mosuli army on an open battlefield, but given the chance, they could certainly hold out in a city for a long time. Besieging Edessa would waste valuable time and do little to dislodge the Franks. In the meantime, Antioch may be lost to the Crusaders. But Karbuga would not listen. He ordered the army to change direction and make for Edessa. The people of Antioch were suffering from mental anguish. Days were turning into weeks, and the Iraqi army was nowhere in sight. Yagi Sion was in total despair. And then the Crusader army assembled itself and headed northeast. There had to be only one explanation. The Mamluk army had arrived, and the Crusaders were setting out to meet them. Antioch breathed a sigh of relief. Night was falling and the people of Antioch felt that their suffering had finally come to an end. By dawn, the city would be free once again. But that was not why the Crusaders had left at all. An evil conspiracy was at play, and at its heart was an Armenian by the name of Feruz. Feruz made armor for a living, he had long been close to Yagi Sion, but had recently been accused of black market trading. Yagi Sion had placed a heavy fine on him. Firuz was outraged. He sought revenge. He contacted the Frange, and in return for promises of land and gold, he agreed to open a small window in one of the guard towers to allow them to enter the city. And so the evil plot was hatched. The bulk of the Crusader army would move to the north so the defenders of Antioch would relax their guard. Feruz would wait by the window at dawn to allow the Crusaders to enter unseen. Ibn al-Athir writes, When agreement was reached between the Frange and this accursed maker of armor, they climbed to that small window, opened it, and hauled up many men by means of ropes. When more than five hundred of them had ascended, they sounded the dawn trumpet, while the defenders were still exhausted from their long hours of wakefulness. Yagi Sion awoke and asked them what was happening. He was told that the sound of trumpets were coming from the citadel, which had surely been taken. Actually, the sound was not coming from the citadel above Antioch, but from just a single tower. But Yagi Sihan did not bother to check. Had he checked, perhaps the fate of the city may have been quite different. But he thought all was lost and fled the city with several of his personal guards. Ibn al-Athir writes further, He burst into tears at having abandoned his family, his sons, and the Muslims. And in great pain he fell unconscious from his horse. His companions tried to put him back in the saddle, but he could no longer hold himself upright. He was dying. They left him and rode off. 
An Armenian woodcutter who happened to be passing by recognized him. He cut off his head and brought it to the Frange in Antioch. The Crusaders streamed into Antioch. Their bloodlust was insatiable. The Muslim men, women, and children tried to flee Antioch, but they were slaughtered in the streets. By midday, their blood-curdling screams had been replaced by the off-key singing of the drunken Christians. it for today please remember to leave a review and rating wherever you listen and to remember to share the podcast with your family and friends we are on all the major podcasting platforms including apple Podcasts, spotify google play stitcher and we're also on youtube as a voice only channel please join our islamic audio bites community on instagram and twitter and follow me on facebook as well do check out our website at islamicaudiobites.com and if you would like to contact me directly, please do so at sisterb 7 at gmail.com. Hope your day is full of goodness. Aslamu